Hello, my friend. Welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the 21st day of January. It is a Friday. I am Paul White. I'm glad to see you. Glad to have you with me. Thank you for joining me today. I pray that you've had a wonderful week, that you are preparing for a fantastic weekend. Let me give you a heads up. Next weekend is our monthly meetings in Chapin, South Carolina and Flowery Branch, Georgia. We will meet next Friday night on the 28th of January, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time in Flowery Branch, and we will meet next Sunday afternoon, January the 30th, at 4 p.m. Eastern Time in Flowery Branch. I think I said Flowery Branch on Chapin, didn't I? Chapin on Friday, Flowery Branch on Sunday. Sorry. Uh, Anyhow, that's our January schedule for those meetings. Uh, Hope you, if you're in the area, you can join us. We'd love to have you. Okay, it's Friday. When we have something, we like to do a long-form Friday, and this is a unique one in that I've been working on some material for almost a year. On the 27th of January last year, I started filming a weekly series doing a 10-year anniversary walkthrough of my first book, Revelation to Transformation, How Seeing Jesus Will Change Your Life. We published that in 2011. So at the beginning of 2021, I started filming a 20 to 25-minute video every week and allowing our group in Chapin, South Carolina to use that video for their meeting. They meet together on Sunday evenings. We meet with them live once a month, but a few of them meet on Sunday evenings and they watch the video. At the end of each video, and it's just me and a camera, me talking through the book, at the end of each video, I put several questions on the screen so that the group can work through the questions. And you kind of got to pay attention to what's happening in the video to really know where to go with the questions. And they're really more for group discussion, but we do that each video. Every chapter of the book... We, we usually take three sessions to get through one chapter. There are 14 chapters. Now, throughout the year, there were me- weeks when the, the group wouldn't meet because of holidays or whatever. So it's not as if we did 52 lessons, because if we had, we would be done with the book. But we did get through the first 10 chapters over the course of 2021. And as 2022 rolled around, we started chapter 11. Up until this point, I've just sat on these because my plan has been when we finish the 14 chapters and the uh, the afterward, that we may make these available as a class that you could pay for and take on our website. You'd have the questions to work through, and etc. To give you a little heads up about that, I'm going to air for you my latest from this series. This one was slightly longer. This one was about 25 minutes. So I I thought it would be a great long-form Friday way to introduce you to this format that we've been doing for about a year. The only people that have seen these is our group in Chapin. Uh, So this will give you a little heads up about what it is. This is session 11.2. You might think, why would you let us listen to 11.2? Well, because I've saved, waited until there was sort of that perfect one that sounded nice and clean all by itself. It's got points. Um, I don't have a lot of filler. 
I had to move, I had to cram to get all these things in there in that session. So I thought this is perfect for Long Form Friday because not a lot of fat, not a lot of wasted time. We jump right in, we make some points. It's from chapter 11 in our book, Revelation and Transformation. Chapter 11 is dealing with sin. This particular lesson shows three ways that I, the author, uh, observe that people deal with sin, and then three ways that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross impacts different people. And we use those threes, those two sets of threes, to build this little lesson. So I think it will be it's crammed with stuff you're going to enjoy. It gives you an idea about what the audio side is like on these videos. And then when we release this series as a class later in the year, which should come up in just a few months, you, you, those of you who listen to Long Form Friday, will have an idea about what is to come. All right, without further delay, and we're going to just play it. And then when we say, see you next time, God bless, that'll be the end of the podcast for today. I encourage you um, to grab your Bible. Um, look up some of the scriptures, or be prepared to write them down, look them up later. This is going to be a fun journey for you. From our Revelation to Transformation 10-year journey uh, through the the 10-year journey, 10-year anniversary journey through the book, uh, from chapter 11, Dealing with Sin, here is our audio session 11.2. Hello, welcome back to our Revelation and Transformation chapter 11. This is section 2, and I do believe, having uh, looked ahead and worked, get, getting ready and working on this section, that we can do this in um, this final session in the chapter. We've, we've done three sections in each chapter up until this point, but uh, I think with the way we've laid the rest of this chapter out, it'd be pretty easy to put it in here as 11.2. Of course, we're with dealing with the chapter titled... Um, Dealing with sin or how to deal with sin. Um, let me give you the, the exact wording on the title. Dealing with sin, yes. Um, but it's really a how-to passage. And this is the segment marked three ways to deal with sin. Since we've done the breakdown in the book, um, it's a very easy breakdown in, in relaying it back to you. Um, not a lot has changed in the way I would approach this, except uh, I... I might have been a little strict on differentiating between the three steps as if there's no crossover. Um, That might be a little bit of youth that feels like um, things are all one way or the other. Um, I might relax a little bit on that. And let me, as we break these down, I'll unveil what I mean by that. Let's get started with that segment, um, and we list these out as three distinct ways. Again, I made them very different from one another. Three distinct ways in which we deal with sin. Um, I'm not going to read the chapter back to you word for word. That's not the way that we've tried to do this entire series. But uh, in this particular section, it makes sense for me to at least give you the body of that that point. And so the first way that we laid out to deal with sin is to concentrate on it, work on it, um, constantly work on defeating it or stopping it, dwell on it, purge it, confess it, uh, confess what you've done, confess what you haven't done. I would probably say it this way now, be entirely sin conscious. That's a way 
that people try to deal with sin. I didn't say it's the right way. I'm saying it's a way. You can go about your life dwelling on doing the right thing. You can strive to do the right thing. You can work at it to the point that it is all that you dwell on. Um, This is called sin consciousness. This is a, and this is a phrase from the Greek, a perpetual consciousness of sin always thinking about working on and concentrating on your sin. The second way that we deal with it is to basically not deal with it, and that is completely ignore it. Act as if sin is not an issue. Just sort of go about your life and do whatever you want. Um, Ignore your conscience. Ignore conviction. Treat it as no big deal because, besides, only God can judge you, right? So it doesn't, you, you'll leave it totally in his hands and let him completely deal with it. Besides, you don't care what people think of you anyway, so who cares, right? In other words, don't deal with it at all. And then thirdly is the finished work of Christ. Accept Christ as the payment for your sin. Accept that he has done on your behalf what you could not do. Take the severity of the cross with its blood and its sacrifice and its darkness. Take that as the embodiment of the love of God. Accept that your sins are in Christ on the cross and then dwell on that Jesus that died and that rose again and that lives inside of you. Take the light off of your sin. Take the light off of your apathy or your action, and place it on Christ. Now, it's obvious which way to go uh, when you lay it out in those stark ways. And I'm sure there are more than my three ways. And in fact, it's pretty obvious they're not even actually all dealing with sin. The second one is to don't deal with it at all. The reason I said a moment ago that I'd probably relax the lines between those a little bit now is because I've come to the knowledge and the realization that what happens as we walk this out is that we do use elements of all of those in our walk in that, first of all, we never truly lose sin consciousness. We are conscious of what's right and wrong or what's good and evil because that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, where that pendulum swings too far is when we are only sin conscious. And so I don't think that sin consciousness within itself is a bad thing, but sin consciousness in order to overcome sin is no better than the legality of the Mosaic law. The second one, which is, of course, ignore, it's not a big deal, who cares? You know, live your life, do, do what you do, or as people like to say, you do you, a phrase that I think is, doesn't make a lot of sense, but... Um, that we don't have a lot of room for that for sure in our in our dealing with sin but i do think that we also should at least give credence to the idea that we should see jesus as so big that we aren't overwhelmed with the severity of sin and let's stop short of not thinking it's a big deal obviously if you've ever been in an environment of failure you know that it the waves that come off of that boulder hitting the ocean of your life are quite large. No one would ever face those consequences and say it's no big deal. 
But I also think we should take, say, 1 John serious, where he tells us that the, those who are in him and he is in them, he says they do not sin. And of course, the whole book he's referencing sin, so he can't mean they never fail, but that failure never defines them. So there is an element in the New Testament of stop giving so much reverence to sin. Stop giving so much respect to sin. It never goes so far as to say, hey, it's not a big deal, who cares? Um, but there should be a little bit of that. And that's what I meant by I didn't have room for those lines to cross when I wrote this book. Um, I have room for that now. I, but I still maintain that the answer to living a life of victory is in the third way to deal with sin, and that is see it dealt with in Christ. Recognize that Christ came to deal with everything that's in our lives. He came to be the answer for us. He came as the answer for us. And that what what we need to do is place that in him, realize that he has taken it, put our faith in him and what he has accomplished, and then allow him through the Holy Spirit to do the work in us day to day. All the while, we're conscious that we're that we fail, and we are not allowing sin to be such a big deal that it overwhelms our faith. So can, I hope you can see how we're actually taking a little bit of the elements of those first couple, but we're really landing on, let's respect the severity of what happened at the cross so that we can live this out. Um, of, of course, when you swing hard on those first couple, you end up self-conscious or you end up apathetic. Neither of those are befitting of the, a child of the king, someone who's a, who lives in the kingdom of God. Um, but I want to deal with those on their own and then land on the finished work, and that'll be our segment. So to deal with that first, which is that self-consciousness, we spend more time in this portion of the chapter dealing with that than any other, and I think that's because I have come out of environments of sin consciousness, and I've, I have to fight that. Even to this day, I have to, to, to dwell on the finished work, dwell on what Christ has done for me due to the fact that there is such a consciousness of sin that wants to overwhelm me from time to time. So if you're going through that, I understand that journey, and I understand that what's happening as you work that out and as you walk that out. But let's give you some scripture to help you along the way. And the three verses that we use, it, it, it takes us a couple of pages to work through them in the chapter, are Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1, 2, and 3. So I'm going to put them up one at a time and just walk through what the author is saying in regards to the self-conscious aspect of our sin. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. So notice that the law is merely a shadow of a substance. It's a shadow of good things to come. So while the law is trying to get you to do it's a shadow. The true substance will create the do inside of you, the D-O. You will do the works of the of God and the fruit of the Spirit as it comes out in you. But the law was just a shadow of what was going to happen. And the problem with it is, according to that text, it could never make 
the people who offer sacrifices actually perfect. So you you were not having a change under the law. You were simply changing your behavior, but you were not changing your standing. You you were not overcomers. And you still are not. Through the machinery of religion, it doesn't make you an overcomer. It doesn't make you victorious. And that leads to the second verse. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. So if it worked to where offering a sacrifice cleaned up your consciousness, you wouldn't have to offer the sacrifice. Notice it doesn't even say that if it had worked that the worshiper never sinned again because that's not what we're going for. It's not, I mean, I don't want to sin again, but it's not as if what they were doing under the law was to keep them from failing. People fail. I mean, we fail under the new covenant. It doesn't mean we're failures. But the law couldn't clean up your consciousness of sin because every time you offered a sacrifice, it reminded you of what a failure you are. What's the difference for us? We don't offer a sacrifice of blood. We accept the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. And the sacrifice of Christ's blood, I don't re-crucify Christ. I don't, he doesn't die daily for me. And therefore, I'm not perpetually conscious of my failure because I am perpetually conscious of his sacrifice. If I have to offer the sacrifice, then I have to go through the the formulas of that sacrifice and the, the details of that sacrifice. And as I offer it, I'm going to be reminded of what a failure I am. I'm going to be reminded of each and every one of my sins. So if it cleaned up the conscience that wouldn't be offered again. The fact that you had to keep offering them meant it was the conscious was not being cleaned. Um, And no way that the author of Hebrews 10 is praising a life of self-consciousness because he's using verses to oppose a life of self-conscious. The third verse then, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And the sacrifices reminded you of the sins. If that was a good thing, then the author of Hebrews would not tell you that the sacrifices have ended in Christ. He would tell you, hey, keep offering sacrifices. That's a good thing. You need reminded of your sin frequently, often, as much as possible. No, That's why the sacrificial system didn't work, and it's one reason why we needed Christ to be the ultimate sacrifice. So thank God, Christ has become the sacrifice. Now, what about Hebrews 9, 14? I want to put that out there because we put it in the chapter, and it leads as a transition almost into that second way to deal with sin. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I want you to make the connection, even though nine precedes 10. That's how the New Testament writers write frequently. In the ninth chapter, in the 14th verse, your conscience has been cleansed from dead works. 
You no longer need to do works to serve God. Doing works is not what pleases God. Christ is what pleases God. If that be the case, there's nothing you can do in order to overcome in your own flesh. My conscience doesn't need to offer up some dead works. And this is what will happen. Um, What happens is that when we fail, our conscience offers up some good works. It'll say, hey, you messed up. You should probably read more Bible. You should probably give to the church building fund. You should probably sign up for the whatever. Because that'll... That's the kind of thing someone would do that's serious about overcoming this. And that's actions birthed out of guilt. Those are dead works. Oh, they're not bad works. They're dead works. They're not, God doesn't ask for your dead works. Your conscience will offer up a laundry list of dead works to serve a living God. But we've been made holy, Hebrews 10.10 says, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So my holiness isn't contingent on my actions, but on Christ's actions. Now then, the second illustration is, of course, to ignore sin, act like it's not that big of a deal. And Hebrews 10.26 warns us that we don't have a sacrifice to go back to if we ignore what Christ has done for our sins. Um, You could use a lot more verses than that. You could use verses all over the New Testament that show the severity of what happens when people fail. Um, even for instance, the verse we used back in the chapter of the scripture that changed my life, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. What's that mean? It means that nothing's against the law to me, but I certainly don't want to do them because of what will happen to me. So if you lived in an attitude of who cares, you would destroy the world around you. That's exactly what would happen. You would bring hell into the world around you if you lived in a way of who cares. Now, you don't want to live in a world where everyone goes, who cares? We also don't want to live in a world where we're so perpetually sin conscious that we can't live in liberty. And so that leaves us with that final way, which is, of course, to allow Christ to do the work, to allow Christ to be the work. Um, I want to put on the bottom of your screen a few verses that you might want to hone in on. We use these near the end of the chapter uh, before we break down 1 Corinthians 1, 23, 24, which is coming up in a moment. That's really our landing spot for this chapter. But these verses deal with, they're just sort of a, 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 a smattering, like a machine gun of verses that show you what happened in that moment at the cross. And so God prepared a body for Jesus because the sacrificial system wasn't working. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, that's right on through that sequence that we were working with in chapter 10. Into the body of Christ, God placed all of our sins and the sin of the whole world. Romans 8 and 3, condemn sin in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him sin who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And then Hebrews 10.10 tells us that he offered that body as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now, two verses later, Hebrews 10.12, that same Jesus sets at the right hand of the Father. Um, Two verses after that, Hebrews 10.14, he makes perfect forever those who accept him by faith. 
Uh, he puts his spirit into our hearts. And Hebrews 10, 17, he remembers our sins and our lawless deeds no more. That's amazing news to me. That leads me to Paul's statement to the Corinthian church. And at this point, I want to put this verse up and then we're going to break down the three things in these two verses that show us what Christ offers through his death on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, 24, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So here's one message, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified, and there's three responses. And so that was kind of what birthed the idea of three ways to deal with sin and me in, in this chapter, because Paul has three responses to the finished work of the cross, and they are the cross is a stumbling block, the cross is foolishness, and the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. So let's look at each one briefly. Number one, Paul says to the Jews... The cross is a stumbling block. Why? Because Judaism trusted in the law and had learned to trust in the law for their righteousness. Not only that, Judaism trusted that because they were given the law, it made them superior to the peoples of the earth. If if we're God's chosen people, you're not. Um, The cross came along as the sacrifice for the sin of the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. And in the consciousness of Judaism, the cross would would mark the end of of the Jewish ceremony, the ceremony of natural priesthood and sacrificial systems, and it would provide, or or rather prove, that man was hopelessly sinful, um, that he was incapable of saving himself, that the law could not save him, that the sacrifices could not save him, that the temple in Jerusalem could not save him, and you would need faith to accept that. Um, if you are in Judaism at this time and you're trusting your works as your righteousness, the cross becomes a hindrance to, to keeping a life of works. The cross is still a stumbling block for people who think they can do this on their own. And so when you talk about the cross of Christ, you're talking about the place of death. Even for us, sometimes, the cross is a stumbling block to us trying to deal with our stuff. And so there's there comes a point where you put what, you can't deal with in the cross and you let it die there. Otherwise, the cross becomes a stumbling block to your overcoming. Secondly, Paul says to the Greeks, the cross is foolishness. When we talk about Greeks, we're talking about the Gentile world outside of Judaism, most of the world at large of Paul's day. Um, The Gentile man didn't think in terms that the Jewish man did, so he didn't look at himself as having really done anything wrong. He looked at the death of Christ as the death of another criminal under the hands of the Roman Empire. If if we let people like Jesus keep saying the things he's saying, we'll have a world run amok with crazy guys. So we need things like the cross because it silences the foolishness of people who think they're something. Um, you would have been hard-pressed to convince the Gentile that the cross was anything but the execution of a guilty man. And we need the execution of guilty man's. Men and sin is a construct, um, something that people have been have told you is wrong, but it's a morality based on someone else's idea of religion. In other words, it's foolish for me to think someone needs to die for me, um, and it's foolish to think that this man did that on the cross. We still have elements of this today when people talk about it's foolishness to trust in the man who lived two thousand years ago, who you believe 
died and rose from the dead. That's foolishness. We, we, and we have to confront that argument in our own lives is to say, my faith is in Christ. I don't have to, I don't have to approach him with intellect only. Not, I don't have to leave my intellect at the door, but I don't have to approach him with intellect only. I approach him with faith. And that leads to the third way to deal with the cross. Paul said to them who, which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And here, Paul removes the barrier between the Jew and the Gentile. He puts them all in the same boat. And he says, you're in the same boat if you trust Christ by faith. That allows you to, to view the cross in a whole different light. Um, the cross then becomes the wisdom and the power of God. Here's something that's happened in the 10 years since I wrote this book that I didn't think of in the time when I was writing it. Paul is actually redeeming the cross in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians because Paul's living in a world where the cross was viewed to be weakness and failure. You people are following a man who was cursed by God, who was killed by the Romans. Why would you follow a man who lost? And so the cross was not something people bragged about. Paul comes along and gives the Christian reason to brag about the cross. And he changes the tone. You got Peter in the book of Acts preaching the crosses, the place where you people killed Jesus. Paul comes along and stops that. I mean, he still admits that the powers of the earth killed him, but he starts to view the cross as a sacrificial lamb on our behalf. That allows the cross to be a place of victory, not a place of defeat. We have a lot, we have a debt of honor to Paul for his first chapter, 1 Corinthians because he, in effect, redeemed the vision of the cross for the early church, and that really allows us to have a vision of the cross that is different. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to close there. Um, we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish, and that's getting out of that 11th chapter. Um, we're going to bring some of these things back in the discussion. Um, I know you, you probably don't take notes when you go, so sometimes the discussions become tougher because you're like, well, I don't know if I remember that, but that's the point of the discussion is that maybe even you have to go back and look at it again and go, okay, I want to walk away with this and this and this. And that's what we try to do with those questions. Sometimes not so much questions as they are just review. Next time will be chapter 12, obedience, living from the heart, not the head. Some good things to get in and to get into. It is a rather long chapter, so I'm pretty sure we'll have to go back to at least three segments. We'll see you next time. God bless.